Um, I am preaching on the sacraments this summer, and I hope that's been helpful. Um, it's certainly been helpful to me. Uh, I've enjoyed kind of diving into the, the um, uh, sacraments, baptism, and Eucharist from differing perspectives. And so this is uh, second to last. Uh, I'm uh, preaching from uh, kind of doing these last three in uh, succession. Did Paul last week, we do the Gospel of Mark. And actually, we probably could have done any of the synoptics, that is Matthew, Mark, and Luke, um, for this one. But Mark is the first. Um, and so it, historically, uh, that is scholarship says, historically, Mark was the first gospel written. And the next week, uh, take on the Gospel of John, and that will conclude. And then Francis and I are off hiking in Colorado, so we'll um, leave it with you to ponder that. And then we, then I'm going to come back and do a um, a series in the um, fall on the sacraments and kind of kind of hone this even further along, just as a way of kind of getting getting back to basics, but also getting new angles. On, on, on what these um, primary rituals, primary acts of the church are about. It is said that a church is a church if you have a table and a font, uh, basically what you need. Uh, in, uh, Presbyterians and Protestants would say you need a pulpit too. Uh, you need the word. You need to interpret, interpret it. So you need, a, uh, you need a font and a table and a pulpit. So uh, I guess preaching on the font and the table um, is kind of central to the life of the church, and that's what I'm at least seeking to do, even if I'm giving, trying to give you some new angles of vision on it. So our second lesson um, comes from Mark's passion narrative, and it is um, Mark's passion narrative around uh, betrayal, and that's really critical to Mark's gospel. Walking the way of Jesus, taking up the cross, what that means, and then the betrayal. Uh, in Mark's gospel, the desertion is about as stark as any gospel. Um, the uh, disciples, uh, virtually all of them, by the time of the crucifixion, desert Jesus. This is the beginning. I will start with Mark uh, 14, verse 17. When it was evening, he came with the twelve. And when they had taken their places and were eating, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be distressed and to say to him one after another, Surely not I. He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the bowl with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that one by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would be better for that one not to have been born. While they were eating, he took a loaf of bread, and after blessing it, he broke it. And he gave it to them, and he said, Take, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and after giving thanks, he gave it to them, and all of them drank from it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I tell you, I will never drink of the fruit of the vine 
until the day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. This is the word of the Lord. One of the uh, critical questions about Eucharist, perplexing really, um, is what do we actually think is going on there? Especially in the words of institution. The words are so familiar to us. Uh, on the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took bread and he blessed it and broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He took the cup after the supper and said, this is the cup, the new covenant sealed in my blood. As often as you drink of it, you do it, remembering me. What do we think is going on in those words? What is going on in the sacrament? Historically, um, we have suggested something redemptive, salvific, liberating, is either being remembered or present or even operative in those words. But again, what does that mean? In the 2018 uh, Presbyterian Book of Common Worship, in the introduction to the Eucharist, it says a variety of things. Um, it says that communion uh, brings us into union with the uh, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, that um, it brings us into the presence of the one whose costly self-sacrifice is for the life of the world, a little bit vague, maybe intentionally so, because it has to, it has to, uh, it has to capture a broad swath in the Presbyterian church. But again, what does it mean? It's a hard one, I think. Brian Garish, who used to teach at Union Seminary, and many of you uh, know uh, Brian Garish's uh, wife, Dawn DeVries, one of the theologians currently teaching at Union Seminary, had, I think, the most sensible thing to say about at least the words of institution. He said that the words of institution at Eucharist must be in sync, must be reconciled to your understanding of the atonement. Meaning, your understanding of what is going on with the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Now, admittedly, that is a tall order. Do we all have an understanding of the atonement? I think we do in some way, shape, or form. All of us have thought about this stuff. And I'm suspecting that when we come forward for communion or receive it in the pews, we think about, you know, what, what, what are you thinking about? Perhaps thinking about forgiveness, perhaps thinking about recommit, recommitting your life to something, I don't know. But um, it's a tall order to address in a sermon, to be sure. And I'm already five minutes into it, so I've got to get after it. <laughs> but I'm, I'm, I'm going to be modest this morning, although I'm going to make a bold statement from the get-go. At least of what I'm thinking about in terms of, of atonement, to try to get at what we're actually trying to say in the Eucharist, at least from Mark's perspective. First of all, let me say from the get-go that I don't believe in redemptive violence. That's probably the most controversial thing that I will probably ever say to you. <laughs> I don't believe in redemptive violence. In other words, to be very concrete about it, 
I don't believe that God needed an innocent sacrifice of his son in order to forgive us. Nor do I believe that God needed a sacrifice in order to demonstrate God's love for us. God's forgiveness was offered to us freely without a sacrifice. And mercy was offered without sacrifice. Do you remember Micah 6.8? Before Micah 6.8, the great prophet said, I do not need sacrifices. What I need from you is to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. It is my profound conviction that suffering and violence must be named as suffering and violence, antithetical to God. It is not the way of God. It is not the will of God. And it must be named so. And so if I could uh, just get at what I think is my core understanding of the atonement, it is this. That in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, violence was exposed for what it is. It is violence. It is abuse of power. It is the kinds of things that we see in the world all the time in big and small ways. The crosses that litter the landscape of the world in big and small ways. Jesus exposed them, disrupted them, agitated us to be about transforming them and loving people back into life. That to me is the gospel. That to me is what atonement is about. That to me is the most biblically based, traditionally informed, socially, politically, and by political, I mean about our common life together, informed understanding of what the gospel is about and what we're called to be and do in the world. It's not an easy task. And it begins, it seems to me, with this first text this morning in Mark's gospel from um, the uh, time after he asked the disciples, who do, you, who do you say that I am? And Peter identifies him as the Messiah. He identifies himself as a suffering Messiah. One who will show the way of God, and there will be backlash. There will be crucifixion. And then he gives the most directive attention to what discipleship is about. He says, if you wish to follow me, you must deny yourself and take up your cross. Now let me quickly get at what I think that means and what I think it doesn't mean. Because cross-bearing has been probably one of the most problematic realities in Christendom. Typically, someone will say about cross-bearing, that is a cross of some oppressive circumstance, that that is a cross that I have been asked to bear. Perhaps an abusive relationship. And so people are counseled to stay in abusive relationships because they say it is your cross to bear on the assumption that something redemptive will come out of it. Let me say again and again, I think that is an offensive interpretation of that. I think feminist theologians are right when they say that that is a, that is a really sadistic notion of God. They think God is working in that kind of way. 
to stay in abusive relationships on the hope that it would be redemptive. God does not work that way. Um, I've been very uh, much helped in my understanding of this text by uh, uh, Raquel St. Clair, a womanist, a black womanist theologian, who took, took special attention to, to this text in a book called Call and Consequence, when she says that um, African-American women historically have been asked to do this, to, be, uh, to pick up the cross in a cross-bearing way and to stay in abusive relationships, uh, egregious relationships, surrogacy relationships throughout their lives. Um, we've seen it again and again. People trying, trying to make something out of slavery like the governor of Florida just tried to do. It's awful. It's, it's, it's abusive. To try to say that God works in those kinds of redemptive ways is just, to me, beyond comprehension. Raquel St. Clair says what I think about what taking up the cross is about. It's about cross-naming. It's about naming the crosses that litter the landscape of the world, exposing them for what they are, resisting them, seeking to transform them at the very site of the abuses, and seeking to love people back into life amid the horrors, amid the woundedness. Cross-bearing, in other words, is, should be named cross-naming and resisting. Now, it's not easy, says Raquel St. Clair, and we all know that it's not easy, because if you're going to do that kind of thing on a regular basis, you're going to get persecution, you're going to get backlash, people are going to push back. Martin Luther King knew that, Oscar Romero knew that, Emmett Till's mother knew that, Mamie Till Mobley. They all knew it. They were going to get pushback. So it's not surprising that the cost of discipleship is hard. And it's not surprising that people would betray it. That betrayal is often kind of written into the fabric of life. The betrayal that is a betrayal of the way of God that, that invites us to be, about, to be about naming and resisting and loving people back into what they're called to be and do. There's a betrayal of that because we can see that there's backlash. Peter saw it. He named Jesus as the Messiah, but then when Jesus said, I, must, I will suffer, he said, no, thank you. And then later on in the Gospels, we have this, this famous scene of James and John who come to Jesus and said, when you come into your glory, um, can, can we sit at your right and your left hand? Do you remember that story? Do you remember what Jesus said to them? It's sacramental. It's, it's amazingly sacramental what he said to them. He says, are you ready to drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? You see, James and John, what they wanted to do was, was, was they wanted to uh, catapult over the hard stuff and take positions in the new administration in the cabinet. That's what they wanted to do. And I think too often that's what we want to do too. We want to catapult over the hard stuff. But what we're, what we're really called to be and do is to push into it, is to stand in the gap, 
to expose it, to name it, resist it, and then to seek it, seek to love it back into being. And so we get this betrayal scene in um, Mark's gospel that is surrounding the Last Supper. Um, and it always seems to me that, you know, when we do communion, what we say right before the words of institutions is important. On the night that he was betrayed. It's not on the night before he died. That's a little too vague. If somebody was a visitor here and you said that, they might think, well, did he have a heart attack? What? It's not at the night that he was at the table with his friends. That's a little too vague. In Mark's gospel, it was on the night he was betrayed. And Jesus knew that he would be betrayed. It was the most complete betrayal in any gospel. Stark in terms. Left completely alone and naked on a cross. Some of the women had followed him, though. It's very interesting. Um, the only ones that didn't betray Jesus in the gospel, in the gospel of Mark, are the women. And the women who came to the tomb. It's interesting. But betrayal was a part of this gospel, and I suspect it's part of the gospel, it's part of the fabric of our lives, part of the fabric of who we are. Because frankly, the cost of discipleship is difficult. It is very difficult. So what Jesus says at supper with them is, is critical. And I think it's agitational. I think it's empowering. He took the bread and he said, this is, this is my body. He took the cup and after all had drinking of it, he tells them what it's about. He says, he says, it's the blood of the new covenant poured out for many. That poured out for many is significant. It means that we're to stand in the gap for many. Standing in the, the blood of the covenant is the lifeblood of Jesus standing in the gap for many. That's the agitational part of communion. It's a very powerful scene. When you ponder communion in the light of the Gospel of Mark, it's, it's a pondering in light of betrayal when Jesus is coming to us yet again and seeking to empower us to be ones who name, who resist, and who love back to life. That's what Jesus is trying to do. So as we come to this table, we come remembering that we are betrayers. We are. All of us have done it. Rowan Williams says it so well. He says that the table reminds us, the food and the cup, that we have a capacity to betray. So he says we don't come to the table because we are well, doing well. We come to the table because we're doing badly. We don't come to the table because we're full. We come to the table because we're hungry. We don't come to the table because we're right. We come to the table because we're confused and we're more often than not wrong. I think he's right about that. But there's something else that's really critical about the table. We come to the table because we were created as God-bearers. 
We come to the table because every one of us were created in the image of God, fallen though we are. We come to the table to be restored in our capacity to name and support that which is of God. We come to the table also to be formed to see and name and resist that which is not of God. We come to the table to be formed to love things back into life. We, take, we partake of the bread and the cup, in other words, to become the body in Christ for the world. That's why we come to the table. Let us pray. Oh God, for the power and the gift of this table that reminds us who we are, especially that which we are afraid to look at. You remind us of our betrayal, and yet you seek to love us back into life. You seek to form in us the body of Christ. You seek to form us into a people that are willing to stand in the gap, to name the crosses of the world for what they are, abuses of power, to resist them, and to love people back into life. That's why we come to the table. That's why we come here every Sunday to be reminded who we are, whose we are, and what we're called to be. In Christ's name, amen.